Praise God for his goodness to us as we continue to trust him and as you pray as to what God would have you give in these final months, so just uh, look to the Lord and uh, he'll provide for us as families and he'll provide for, provide for us as a church. You know, I'm reminded that uh, God has been faithfulness last year, but God has been faithful over the years and we stand on the shoulders of giants who've gone before us here at Calvary over the 45 plus year history of Calvary. We've, uh, we've seen... Uh, folks who've given their time and their energies and their efforts and their finances to keep moving the gospel forward. We continue to do that in our generation, but I was alerted this morning by our founding pastor, Larry DeWitt, who's right over here, that uh, we have someone here who was a part of the original core group when he and Becky arrived in 1976, and I believe that that's Mrs. Hansen down here, Ethel Hansen, who is down here in the front, 97 years old, is with us uh, this Sunday, and what an honor to have you here. And She's being pointed to. I know her family, she's waving. Her family continues to be a part of the Calvary family. And so it's good to have you with us, Mrs. Hansen. And she was a part of that little core group of about six to eight families that made up that, that group that was here when uh, Larry and Becky arrived and kind of a church that had been here for a number of years was relaunched as Calvary Community Church. And so, uh, again, we stand on the shoulders of giants before us. And there will be people who uh, will be impacted by our giving today in generations to come because of how God has blessed us and our faithfulness to being a part of what he's called us to be a part of as a church. So thank you and great to have you with us this morning and to uh, be able to celebrate that. We are going to continue today in our study of the book of Daniel. If you want to open to the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 2, go there on your mobile device, and we're going to be looking at several chapters. If you weren't here last week, we launched the study of this book, and we used the Bible Project's nine-minute overview video. If you were here, you probably didn't memorize it and might need a refresher. Uh, If you weren't here, it's a great way to get the big picture of this book. And so if you go to seanslinks.com slash Daniel, seanslinks.com slash Daniel, you can look at that video and uh, share it with others. Maybe you're, you know someone in your small group or whatever was gone that first week and they're saying, man, I'm lost in this book of Daniel. Well, that's a great way to get your bearings. I also thought it might be helpful as we're going to be looking at all of the prophecies of the book of Daniel this morning in the message. So put your seatbelts on. We're going to be moving through a lot of material here in the book of Daniel. But I thought it would be great for us to see the big picture. A lot of times folks, when they get into prophetic things, whether it's things about the first coming of Jesus or the second coming of Jesus is coming yet to be, they they get so caught up in the imagery of predictive prophecy, they get caught up in who might that be and what country might this be and where is this gonna happen and when is that gonna happen, that I think we become so expert at some of those details that we miss what prophecy says about our God. And here's Daniel in a foreign land, In a time of uncertainty, he's being held captive. Uh, As we talked about, the Babylonians in around 586 uh, conquered the kingdom of Judah and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, and they killed a lot of people. And then they took uh, four young men, at least we know of, four young men, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, to be captives in Babylon's capital city, and they became advisors to the king. And we saw that last week, and now we're gonna see how God gives Daniel the opportunity to see what's coming in the future, and ultimately how God is gonna bring a conclusion to human history. He won't be a victim of the end of human history. He's writing that story. But I thought, what better way for us to just understand the prophecy in Daniel but maybe a simple chart that we just sort of laid out. So I found this chart I thought would be very helpful to you. It might help you see the, the details. 
That was written in 1916, and it may have a lot of accuracy, but boy, this can be, it can be a little overwhelming. I want to share with you today five things we learn about God from the prophecies in the book of Daniel. A quarter of the Bible is predictive prophecy. Much of it is fulfilled in the first coming of Christ, and uh, much of it is yet to be filled in the, fulfilled in the second coming. But today we're going to talk about hope, clarity in the middle of uncertainty. As you came in this room, perhaps... Uh, the world events that you see uh, unfolding all around the globe leave you with some uncertainty. Maybe the politics of our nation make you feel that there's some uncertainty. Maybe there have been things in your life this week or in the last month or in the last year that has just made you feel like, what's going on? Well, I think when we get a good look at our God and even a look at our God through uh, the prophecies of a book like the book of Daniel, we begin to understand that we can have clarity in our God that will help us. And in, it'll help us to know the promises he has even yet for the future. It'll help us today. So we want to think about this theme as we look into these prophecies in the book of Daniel. As we gaze at our God, his remarkable promises about tomorrow bring us incredible hope and clarity today. As we get a really good look at our God, his promises about how he's going to bring a conclusion to uh, world history and how he's going to establish his eternal kingdom. He's going to make all things new and establish his eternal kingdom, a new heavens and a new earth. That should help us have some clarity, even if we don't have all the answers to the uncertainty of our day. First thing we're going to see about our God is in Daniel chapter 2. It's that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He's in control. In Daniel 2, the, the emperor of the then known world, the emperor of the Babylonians, is Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar has been having some rough nights of sleep because he's having this reoccurring dream. And so he challenges the wise men, the soothsayers, the magicians, the astrologers, the educated that he's gathered from all the, all the countries he's conquered and added to his empire. He's brought what he thought were the brightest and the best to give him advice, mainly so he can get more power and become more wealthy and fulfill his own lusts and greed and all. But he has these advisors and he goes to them and says, you know what? I'm tired of giving you guys dreams and then you make up whatever you want to make up. But they say, you got to tell me what the dream is and the interpretation or you're dead. And none of them can do it. The first senior ones that come in, so he says, all right, kill all of them. Well, they go to kill Daniel and his friends who are advisors to the king. And Daniel says, wait, 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 why are we being killed again? Because none of the advisors of the king seem to be able to tell him what the dream is that he's having and uh, the interpretation of that dream. And so uh, Daniel says, give me a shot. He talks to the Lord and then the Lord helps him. And so he goes into Nebuchadnezzar. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, let me tell you what the dream is. Let me tell you the interpretation of the dream. He says, you've been dreaming about a big statue. And this statue has a head of gold, uh, arms and chest of silver, the belly and thighs of bronze and the legs of iron and then the feet and toes are iron and clay mixed together. O king, this golden head represents your kingdom, the kingdom of the Babylonians, but it will come to an end. And then we know the Medes and Persians enter into human history as the great dominant empire that controls the then known world. Then the Greeks come in with the Grecian Empire and then the Romans. And then from about the time the Roman Empire ends, 
the world really never has one dominant controlling empire. And so it seems that this, this breakup of the toes and the clay and the iron speaks of what Daniel, the book of Daniel calls the lesser kings. And that brings us even up to the modern era. And even then in, in the dream, Daniel says, and when you saw this statue, you, you saw all of a sudden this stone come out of this mountain, this stone that wasn't cut by hand, speaking of the divine nature of this stone, this rock. And this rock comes and, and it destroys these evil, unjust, greedy, power-hungry, lustful uh, human empires. And the stone comes and crushes the statue so it turns to dust. And so the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, the iron and the clay, it's all dust. And then winds come and blow all that away. And that tells you, King, that uh, there is a time coming when all the empires like yours will be gone. They'll be the dust of history and this rock will all that will be left and that rock will grow into a mountain that mountain will fill the earth and that mountain will last forever and it speaks of the eternal kingdom that jesus will come and judge the living and the dead and establish for all eternity and uh, we know that and understand that and Nebuchadnezzar rewards Daniel for uh, helping him understand this prophecy god wants Nebuchadnezzar to know you're not in charge i am he wants Daniel and the people of God who are under captivity and have been crushed in God's judgment by the Babylonians to know, look, I haven't given up on you. I'm in control. I've got this. God is sovereign. Promise number one, when we understand that God is sovereign from the prophecies of Daniel, even right here in chapter two, is that no matter how chaotic everything seems, God controls it all. God controls it all. He shapes the course of human history for his eternal purposes. And he filters the challenges in your life. Everything that comes into your life is father filtered. You may not believe that. First Corinthians ten thirteen says that he understands what may bend you, but he'll never let you be broken. He may allow circumstances to come into your life to mold you and shape you and make you more like Jesus, to draw you closer to himself, a variety of reasons, but he's not going to let those things crush you. Everything in your life is fathered, filtered in the sovereignty of God. And we step back and, and, and we understand that we should not be the people on the planet who are the most panicked. We shouldn't be running around like Chicken Little with his head cut off because this happened or that happened. We should understand that God is sovereign. When David prays to God and talks to God, he, he, he speaks of how God is in control of everything. Look at Daniel uh, chapter 2. I want to look at verses 20 and 21. Look at this with me. He said, praise the name of God forever and ever, for he has all wisdom and power. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. You know, in 2016, there were people who came to me and they were very concerned that Donald Trump was elected. And I said, look, God's got this. In 2020, people come to me and said, I'm concerned that Joe Biden was elected. It is God who raises up kings and takes down kings. God didn't lose in any election. God is not a, a victim of, of man's wishes and wills. God ultimately is weaving things, and there is going to be a day when all the kingdoms of this earth, all the evil and all the justice will be judged, and there is a coming time when the rock is going to return, and all of that is going to be pushed into history, and he's going to establish his eternal kingdom and God is in control. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. The only thing I can lay my head on the pillow at night about is that no matter what's happening in the world or in my life, my God is in control. He is sovereign.
Secondly, God is transcendent. God is transcendent. This has the idea that he is apart from his creation. Deists believe that God created the universe and he wound it up and then he let it go. And he's now a, a victim, this, this cosmic tinkerer of whatever happens because he can't do anything about it because he is outside of time and space. But actually that God is transcendent is important to us. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel now gets a vision and in the vision, he sees these four beasts come out of the sea. One is like a lion with wings. Another is a bear, a leopard with wings. And then this hideous beast comes that has all these horns. And one of the horns has human features and, and speaks with blasphemy. And it's arrogant and proud. And, and he sees this vision then of, of God seated on his throne, the ancient one, the ancient of days. And that God then crushes that final beast that represents all these kingdoms, much like the rock that comes and destroys the statue. This beast is taken care of by God. And the, 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 the ancient one, the ancient of days, God seated on his throne, welcomes in the Son of Man who rides on, a cl on clouds, and he gives him all authority, much like Philippians 2, where it says God has given to Jesus the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And in this vision, God allows Daniel to see into heaven, and he sees the throne room. Let's look at Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 14. I watched as thrones were put in place, and the ancient one sat down to judge, or the ancient of days, God the Father. His clothing was as white as snow, his hair like purest wool. He sat on the fiery throne, and fire speaks of judgment, with wheels which were of blazing fire. It speaks of activity, and a river of fire was pouring out. It speaks of the judgment of God flowing from his presence. Millions of angels ministered to him. Millions stood to att attend to him. Then the court began its session, and the books were opened. I continued to watch because I could hear the little horn's boastful speech. Remember that horn I told you on the fourth and final beast? I kept watching until the fourth beast was killed and its body was destroyed by fire. The other three beasts had their authority taken from them, but they were allowed to live a while longer. As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that the people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Get the picture here? Uh, you've got all, again, this evil and wickedness and even this character, this, this, this boastful, arrogant uh, character that's described by this little horn on this final beast, uh, that there is a judgment coming, that evil will not always have its way, injustice will not always be spreading, but God is going to bring that to an end. And the ancient one receives the Son of Man who comes riding on the clouds, and he gives him all authority, and then he establishes his eternal kingdom. Again, this incredible picture. But now we see this God who is seated on a throne, far above and distinct from all of this. But then there is this Son of Man who comes into his presence. God is transcendent. Promise number two is this. No matter how overwhelming life seems, God exists outside of time and space. So whatever you're going through, your heartaches and your pains, they don't impact God. But at the same time, they sort of do. Because we have this ancient one on his throne, but then we have the Son of Man coming on the clouds. It's an interesting term, the Son of Man. 
Jesus, when he referred to himself, called himself the Son of Man more than anything else he called himself in the Gospels. Over 80 times he referred himself as the Son of Man. Why is that? Because he is God who has come in human flesh. The God who is transcendent out of time and space entered into time and space, encased himself in human flesh. He lived a life that was, that was full of temptation and trials, yet he didn't sin, we're told. And we're now told that because of that, we have one who is seated at the right end of the Father, who is like our high priest, who gets our struggles and our infirmities. So this God who is not under all of the trials and situations we're under, understands it though. Okay, let's look at, at, at this concept of transcendence for a moment. Transcendence is, is that God exists outside of his creation. He's far away beyond time and space. And so what I'm going through isn't impacting him so I can go to him for strength and wisdom and, and, and for the, the power I need to endure. But at the same time, theologians tell us about the eminence of God. Not eminence like the return of Christ that can come soon with, an, uh, with I's and E's, but now we've got with an A in here, eminence. And eminence means God exists within his creation. He's a part of it. He's in the cracks and crannies of all of creation. He's nearby, inside time and space. And you remember the title Jesus was given when he was born? Emmanuel, God with us. And so when you consider the transcendence of God, he is outside of time and space, but then the eminence of God, he is close by and near and, and understands and has existed within time and space in the incarnation of Jesus. Then you read something like Jeremiah 23, 23, and 24, and you understand how he is far away and yet nearby. Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them, declares the Lord? I am right there with you, even when you try to hide in secret. But there's this vastness of, of God that is outside of time and space. Do not I fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Says, am I not nearby as well as far away? See, God exists outside of time and space, but he gets it. He gets it. He knows what it's like to grieve over the loss of someone you care about. He knows what it's like to sweat. He knows what it's like to feel pain in a human body. He knows what it's like to be disappointed. He knows the experience that we have in the ups and downs of everyday life. And it never gets him. He gets it, but it never gets him. In other words, he is not overwhelmed by the same things that overwhelm us, but he understands the things that do overwhelm us. He is transcendent and eminent at the same time, which gives us as his children such wonderful hope and an ability to trust him through whatever we're going through. I remember when uh, I was a kid, about eight or nine years old, we had one neighbor on one side, my best friend Lance I grew up with, I lived there, and we lived on this little dead-end cinder street, and on the other side, uh, uh, when I was about seven or eight, a young family moved in with a little baby, and, and uh, they had a German shepherd, a blonde German shepherd, uh, that's name was Cotton. Sounded really sweet, right? But this dog was like trained to kill and protect the property. And so it knew on the driveway about where it could go. And when it got really vicious at someone approaching the driveway or close, just passing by on the little cinder street, which we rode our bikes there all the time, he would start to cross that boundary and you would hear a voice somewhere in the back just cry out, leave it, leave it, Cotton, which always made you feel really special. <laughs> leave it, leave it, Cotton. And the dog would just stop back up and go back. 
Well, one time Lance and I were riding bikes and we probably were teasing Cotton because he was at the ledge, edge, kind of like Foghorn, Leghorn with that dog, you know, we're teasing he can come this far. And we expected as the dog started to growl and started to move toward us like he was going to attack us and lunge on us, we expected to hear, leave it, leave it, Cotton. But our neighbor had gone inside. And so Cotton came closer and Lance was able to get away. But then Cotton, if I went this way, he'd go that way and growl at me. If I went this way and I couldn't get away from him and I was in a panic that Cotton was just going to overwhelm me. This circumstance was going to overtake me. And there was no voice saying, leave it, Cotton, come from, coming from uh, the folks that uh, owned Cotton. And I was in a panic. And all of a sudden from nowhere, I heard a voice say, leave it. And then my dad was there. And he knew I was scared. He could understand it. He'd been there as a kid before too. He got it. But he came out of the situation and he was above. This dog wasn't going to hurt him. As a matter of fact, my dad was in Vietnam, a dog trainer. And so he trained dogs to kill and helped others train dogs to kill. And so he knew exactly what to do. He took his forearm and that dog attacked at us. And he took his forearm and just put it deep in the dog's mouth. It's actually counterintuitive, but a dog can't bite when it's got your forearm in the back of its mouth. And my dad happened to have a screwdriver. He'd been working in the garage. And so he took the screwdriver and he took the handle of the screwdriver and started hitting Cotton on the head yelling, leave it, leave it. <laughs> and he went back and whimpered away and, and uh, I, I was safe. And that just so reminded me as I was thinking about that story this week of how our God transcends. He's outside of our situation, but at the same time, he gets it and knows and can be there for us to help us walk through whatever we're going through. That's one of the remarkable things about our God is that we can trust him because he's in control. We can rest in him because he, at the same time, he's transcendent, is imminent. He is outside of time and space, but he gets it and knows what we're going through. Thirdly, God is just. God is just. In Daniel 8, there's another vision. It kind of repeats the vision. It's like as these visions come throughout the book, these prophecies, they just sort of keep angling in on how there is this one who's going to rise up and cause the nations to shake their fist at God, and there's going to be another one, like the stone that comes and crashes the, the statue, or the Son of Man riding on the clouds who's given all authority to establish his eternal kingdom. We get this image of the, in Daniel 8, this is Daniel's own second vision, and we get this image of a ram and a goat. It speaks of the Medes and Persians and the, the Greeks, and they're, they're warring with one another. And um, the horn on the one goat is hideous and awful, and again represents like that little horn, this voice that's going to stand up against God. And um, I want to read Daniel 8, 23 and 25 as for we just see that image, at the end of their rule, when their sin is at its height, a fierce king, a master of intrigue will rise to power. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause a shocking amount of destruction and succeed in everything he does. He will destroy powerful leaders and devastate the holy people. He will be a master of deception and will become arrogant. He will destroy many without warning. He will even take on the prince of princes, Here's the rock that was not made with hands. Here's the son of man coming on the clouds. He'll take on the prince of princes in battle, but he will be broken, though not by human power. God's divine judgment. Now, some believe that as you have that second kingdom after the ram of the Medes and Persians, you have the Greeks, that it broke into four kingdoms and there were four horns there, and then one horn comes out of that. Some believe in the 160s BC that Antiochus Epiphanes uh, who was the Syrian king under the Greeks, that he is the one pictured in this. And that's very possible because 
Before Adolf Hitler, from the 160s BC till the 20th century, the most hideous name in all of Jewish history was Antiochus Epiphanes because he marched into Jerusalem and he not only destroyed the temple, but he slaughtered a pig on the altar and desecrated the temple and defiled it and did everything possible to crush the Jews and to stamp them out. And he was, he was hideous. He created a holocaust uh, that was horrific in his day. And it's possible that he is part of that fulfillment in that time and he's a foreshadow of the Antichrist described in the book of Revelation because a lot of this speaks of that prince of princes and, and this man is not stopped by human power but by divine power. There's a day coming when the nations will shake their fist at God and, and Jesus will return and that statue will be crushed. The Son of Man will have all authority and the fierce king will rebel against God and the prince of princes, Christ himself, will win the battle and he will establish his eternal kingdom again. The, the point here in that God is just is that this man who is arrogant and deceptive, this person that rises up that's described in Daniel 8, it looks like he's gonna get away with it. And sometimes we look at the evil and injustice in this world and we say, how long, God, are you gonna let this go on? Or is God weak that he's not gonna judge all this? God is just. God is just. Promise number three is no matter how evil people seem, God will hold everyone accountable. Nobody's going to get away with anything. The scriptures say that it's appointed to every human being once to die, and after that, they're going to stand before the Creator in judgment. Everyone will be held accountable. God is just. All evil and injustice must and will be punished by God. Even if it seems that Evil and injustice escapes here on earth, the judgment that's deserved. God will, in the end, judge all. And here, let's make it even more personal. Your evil and injustice must and will be punished as well. My evil and injustice must and will be punished. But the great story of this Emmanuel, God with us, the God the Son, the rock, not made with hands, the son of man coming on the clouds, the prince of princes, the great story is that he came and walked among us. He went to the cross and as Jesus, the innocent lamb, was hanging on the cross as the final sacrifice for our sins, all of my injustice that I have ever done to anyone, all of my evil was placed on Jesus. All of yours was placed on Jesus. And that condemnation that's hovering over us because we don't measure up to who God is and, and the, the judgment that must fall was put on Christ. He, he took it on himself. He was buried and they conquered the grave, not just to show that he could die for our sins, but he could be raised to give us new life and new hope. If you're here and you haven't put your faith in Jesus, there is a condemnation hovering over you that Jesus took care of on the cross. And if you come to this place where you say, okay, I can't be good enough, I can't be religious enough, but I put my faith in Jesus, then God, because of what Jesus has done for you and nothing more than that and only that, because of what Jesus has done for you, when you put your trust in Christ to be right with God, that condemnation hovering over you is removed because it was taken care of in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Can I encourage you right where you are to just look at your own life? Have you been trying to be ready for judgment one day? Been trying to be ready, get your things together and make your life? It's about Jesus and what he did for you. Put your faith in him. If you're joining us online, you can text the name Jesus to the number below me on the screen right now. And if you text the name Jesus to that number, we'll share with you some resources to help you grow in Christ. We'll 
check in on you this week, somebody on our staff to help you know what it means to know that that condemnation is gone, that you're God's child and you can walk with him and that you'll face no condemnation because Jesus took it for you. Just text the name Jesus to the number on the screen. If you're in the room, you can do that same thing. Text the name Jesus to the number on the screen. That's the only message you need to send is that his name and we'll follow up with you and help you in your walk. Uh, you are, who are here on the campus, I'll be on the patio after the service. If you'd like to talk to me about that, I can even have someone take you aside and show you from God's word how you can know that you are God's child, that the condemnation judgment that falls on all of us is removed in your life because of Jesus. God is just. We can trust him. No one's going to get away with anything. In the end, justice will be a part of what God brings when that stone comes, that son of man establishes his kingdom and the prince of princes has victory. Fourthly, God is merciful. God is merciful. Now that almost seems, okay, wait a minute. God is just, judgment is coming. Sin and injustice must be taken care of. Yes. A.W. Tozer said, God's justice and God's mercy do not quarrel with each other. They go together. What is mercy? Mercy is God holds back what we deserve. He doesn't give us what we deserve. And, and we, are, we are, as God's children, children of a merciful God who, who extends his patience to us and to humanity. Daniel is so concerned because he, he, he knows that these images are that judgment is coming. His people are in exile. He, he's confused and he goes to the prophet Jeremiah and he reads the scroll of Jeremiah and it says that this captivity under the Babylonians and then into the Persians is going to last 70 years and it's about 70 years. And so he starts saying, okay, how long, Lord? We're about there. And God sends an angel who says, you know what? I'm going to allow you to begin to return from the captivity, but my people are still in sin. They're still turning their back on me. I, I'm going to continue some of the judgment. And he says, it's going to be 70 times 7. I know it said it would be 70, but we're times that by 7. It's going to be 490 years of continued judgment. And Daniel hears that in Daniel 9. And it, it begins to just break his heart. And yet... He understands that God is extending mercy. Look at Daniel 9, 26 and 27. After this period of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one, that's the Messiah, the Christ, will be killed, appearing to accomplish nothing. A lot of people look at Jesus' life, they say, oh, he went to a cross. I know some people say he was raised, but he probably wasn't. And it looks like he was killed, looks like it's over, that it was for nothing. And a ruler will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. Again, speaking of that Antichrist described in the book of Revelation, the end will come with a flood and a war, and its miseries are decreed from that time to the very end. The ruler will make a treaty with the people for a period of one set of seven, but after that, half this time he will put an end to the to the sacrifices and offerings and as a climax to all his terrible deeds he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration until the fate decreed for this defiler is finally poured out on him until the rock comes and smashes all of that and brings human history to an end until the son of man establishes his kingdom with the authority of the ancient one until the prince of princes defeats this fierce king but but god it helps Daniel see that, Daniel, what I'm doing here is I'm extending my mercy. I'm giving this time for my people to turn to me, for the world to come to me. Promise number four is you think about who God is, as God is merciful. No matter how depraved the world seems, God extends patience to sinners. 
He extends patience. Peter was asked by people, you know, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Why hasn't he come? We thought he'd return by now. And Peter responds in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, his promise to return, to make all things right, to, to bring judgment and establish a new heavens and a new earth. The Lord isn't really being slow about this promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. And people say to me, oh my goodness. You know, I've heard people say, if, if God doesn't bring judgment on our world today, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. God's not going to apologize to anyone. You know what he's doing right now? He's saying, whoever will may come. Know the love of my son. Find forgiveness in Jesus. The, the good news is going out. He's saying, whoever will may come. Whoever will may come. He's extending his mercy so that more would come. I am thankful that his mercy was extended to the point that I could come to faith in Jesus. We need to be grateful. Be grateful for his patient mercy towards you. Thank God he was merciful so that we could be included in his family and be forgiven by Jesus. Take a moment this week and just say, thank you, God, for Jesus. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that there's still mercy you're extending to my relatives, to my neighbors. And then we need to be urgent about his patient mercy toward others. We shouldn't just say, thank you, God. Wow, I'm saved. Good. Too bad for the rest of them. No, you know what we're supposed to do now? Now we're to live and love like Jesus lived. We're to be the fulfillment of his prayer that his will would be done, his kingdom would come through us as we live more and more like Jesus and love like Jesus loved with our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends and our family. We get to be the embodiment, the hands and feet of Jesus so that our lives and then from our lips we're saying, whoever will may come, come to Jesus. His mercy is extended, come to Jesus. That's what we're here for, to be lights that point folks back to him. Praise God, our God is merciful. The Messiah will bring all this to an end. The Son of Man will establish his eternal kingdom. The Prince of of Princes is going to have the ultimate victory. One day that stone is going to destroy all the evil of greed and power and, and lust of earth's kingdoms and of humanity. Establish his kingdom. But right now, he's saying, whoever will may come. Whoever will may come. Don't wait. Put your faith in Jesus today. Reach out to us. Let us help you if you have questions. Fifth and finally, God is faithful. God is faithful. God is sovereign. He's in control. He's got this. God is transient and imminent. He's outside of time and space, and so these things don't affect him. But he understands in his heart what we're going through, and he's ready to step in and help us. God is just, it looks like evil and injustice is going unpunished, but God one day is going to judge all. But yet he's merciful, saying, whoever will may come, whoever will may come. And then God is faithful. You see, part of this that's announced that grieves Daniel's heart as he finds out that the people even in captivity and those back in Jerusalem and Judah are still disobeying God. They're still caught up in sin. They haven't responded to God's judgment and turned back. They're still being unfaithful. But God wants Daniel to know, look, I'm going to remain faithful even when my people are unfaithful. Second Peter, excuse me, 2 Timothy 2.13 says, if we are unfaithful, he remains faithful for he cannot deny who he is. Daniel gets a third and final vision in Daniels 10, 11, and 12. It again shows the movement of the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans and into the time of the lesser kings, even into our era. And then it speaks of a king of the north that comes and defies God and again attacks God's people and seeks to destroy anything that represents Jehovah God. 
And we're told that this is a spiritual battle. We just sang about it a few moments ago when Scott led us in the battle belongs to the Lord. I'll fight this battle on my knees. That Daniel was praying to God. He was looking for God to bring him hope that, that he wouldn't turn his back on his people, that God would be faithful even though they've been unfaithful. And he has an angel come to him three weeks after he started praying for, for some hope and some, some message for God that God was going to be faithful to his people. And look what we read in uh, uh, Daniel chapter 10, verse 12. Then he said, this is the angel Gabriel coming to Daniel. Don't be afraid, Daniel, since the first day you began to pray three weeks ago for understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your request has been heard in heaven. You've been praying on your knees. I've come and answered your prayer. But for 21 days, three weeks, the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia, the demon overseeing this realm, they've moved from the Babylonian kingdom to the Persian kingdom now toward the end of these 70 years, blocked my way. Then Michael, one of the archangels, came to help me, and I left him there with the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia. Now I am here to explain what will happen to your people in the future, for this vision concerns a time yet to come. Daniel, I'm here to help you. I'm here to help you know God is going to be faithful. Even though your, your own people have been unfaithful to him, he's going to be faithful. But I'm telling you, this is a battle, Daniel. There was a demon who doesn't want me to come and encourage you who I had to wrestle with. And Michael the archangel had to come. And he's still there wrestling, but it freed me up to come and to bring you. Folks, what we're going through in the, the physical world is one thing, but there's a spiritual battle of angels and demons all around us at all times. There's a spiritual battle. Ephesians 6 says we're, we're in a spiritual war, but God has equipped us to be able to handle this war. He is faithful to us even as he, his angels wrestle with demonic beings. He's faithful to us when we are unfaithful. And then in Daniel 11, 44 and 45, we read about the end again. One more, again, it's an expanded look again at how there'll be this, this individual that will cause everyone to rise up against God and God will bring judgment to him. But then the news from the east and the north will alarm him, this antichrist, this one who raises his fist to God. And he will set out in great anger to destroy and obliterate many. This is the king of the north as described in Daniel 9, 10, or excuse me, 10, 11, and 12. He will stop between the glorious holy mountain and the sea and will pitch his royal tents. But while he is there, his time will suddenly run out and no one will help him. Judgment is coming. And then we read in, right after that in Daniel 12, that's the end of chapter 11, in Daniel 12, the first three verses, at that time, Michael the archangel who stands guard over your nation will arise. Then there will be a time of anguish greater than any since nations first came into existence, there's a time of judgment coming. But at that time, every one of your people whose name is written in the book will be rescued. Those who are written in the book don't have to go through that. Many of those whose bodies lie dead and buried will rise up, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting disgrace. God is going to send Jesus with his authority to judge the living and the dead. Some will be welcomed into heaven, some will be sent to hell. Those who are wise will shine as bright as the sky. Our light will be bright, and those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever. As we live out his kingdom, as we live in love like Jesus in this world, and point more people to Jesus, there is a brilliance and a brightness and a glory that goes to God through our lives. But judgment is coming. And God is going to remain faithful to us. He'll take care of that rebellious voice and ultimately he'll be faithful and those who are his will be safe 
and they will enter eternity in his eternal new heavens and new earth as his children. Promise number five, no matter how lost God's people seem, how unfaithful they appear, God never gives up on them. I don't know about you, but I'm glad for that. That when I am not being faithful to him, God is faithful to me. He won't give up on Sean. He won't give up on you. Your life always changes. It has ups and downs and twists and turns. But your God never changes. Scriptures say Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will be faithful. He writes the end of human history. He's not going to be a victim of it. Things aren't out of control. Don't panic. Our God is sovereign. Our God is transcendent and yet eminent. Our God is just. Our God is merciful. Our God is faithful. We can look to him. We can rest in him. We don't have to panic. We don't have to run around like Chicken Little. We have the Lord. We should not be the most panicked people and the most conspiratorial people on the planet. We've got the Lord. He's got this. He's got this. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Hebrews 10, 23. Let's hold on to the hope. Let's hold on to the hope that that rock is going to come and wipe away all evil and establish his eternal kingdom of hope and joy and peace. Let's hold on to the hope that the Son of Man has that authority to judge and establish his kingdom forever. Let's hold on to the hope that the Prince of Princes has the victory, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's hold on to the hope that the Anointed One may appear like he's lost, but he is the victor and we are victorious in him. Let's hold on to the hope that our God is sovereign, transcendent, just, merciful, and faithful. He's got this. He's got you. As you gaze at God... Are his promises about tomorrow bringing you hope and clarity for today? You see the uncertainty we're going through? That's one thing. But to have clarity, that God's got this. God's got me. I can trust him. He gives us hope in this moment, in the moment of uncertainty that's swirling around us. Do you have clarity in the middle of uncertainty? Do you have hope in your God? In August of 1953, then-President Dwight Eisenhower was on vacation in Colorado. He was in Denver, vacationing. And on Sunday morning, August 16th, 1953, one of his aides brought to him early that morning an article written by a reporter that was written on behalf of a six-year-old boy named Paul Haley who lived in Denver. Paul Haley was six years old, had cancer, and had been given only a few months to live. And Paul Haley had written to this newspaper, the Rocky Mountain News, and said that while Hopalong Cassidy and Roy Rogers were some of his heroes, that his number one hero was then-President Eisenhower. And he wrote how one of his greatest wishes is that he could meet the president. And he knew the president was in town for this vacation. So this reporter wrote an article, just addressed it as an open letter to President Eisenhower on a Sunday morning in the Rocky Mountain News, August 16, 1953, and he said, spend some time, just take a few moments to go visit this little boy. When the aide read it to Eisenhower, he and his wife were going to be attending church that morning. He said, on the way to church, let's stop and see this little boy. So unannounced, the President of the United States drives to the Haley home, pulls up in the limousine, and as he pulls up in the limousine, 
the father, Donald Haley, opens the door and there's President Eisenhower. And he sees the limousine with the flags hanging on the fender. And he's stunned. And the president, of course, introduced himself and said, I'm here to see your son, Paul. And Donald Haley hadn't brushed his teeth, combed his hair, hadn't really gotten dressed for the day. He felt just terrible. But his son came running around the corner, dressed as a cowboy, all excited, welcomed the president into the living room. They sat and chatted. President Eisenhower took Paul Haley, this little six-year-old boy, out to the limousine, let him climb around the seats, brought him back in, said goodbye to him, got in the car and drove away. You can imagine the news reporters descended on this family. They asked Donald Haley, uh, just said, what was it like to have the president of the United States visit your home? He said, if I knew he'd been coming, my life would have been a lot different that day. I would have brushed my teeth, combed my hair. It would have changed how I lived. They asked the little boy, Paul Haley, what was it like that the president of the United States came to your house and surprised you like that? He didn't surprise me. I believed he was coming. I was ready. Now, that's kind of where we are when it comes to what God has planned for the future and how he's going to make all things right, make all things new. Jesus is coming. And the scriptures say today could be the day. There's nothing holding back Christ's coming and unleashing that judgment and making a new heavens and a new earth. What are you going to be like Donald Haley and say, I wish my life, I knew I would have had things. You just need to know Jesus. And then, as his child, we live out his kingdom life here and now, drawing others to Jesus. So we're ready when God sums up everything and when Jesus comes. We need to be more like that little boy who said, I knew he was coming. I was ready. And we need to be living with that same kind of preparation, not to be in his family or to go with him. If you know Christ, you're going to be with him and go with him. And that eternity uh, in heaven and a new heavens and a new earth are yours. But we need to be living out his kingdom values, living our lives so that others see the reality of Christ in us. We need to be looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, the rock not made with hands, the Son of Man coming on the clouds, the Prince of Princes, the Anointed One, the Messiah. He's coming. It could be this very day. And when he comes, all of human history will be summed up because our God is sovereign, our God is transcendent and imminent, our God is just and merciful, our God is faithful. Oh, what will it be like when we behold him?